Calling all Arizona attorneys. Where are my brothers and sisters at? I hope you are ready to be educated and inspired. Or at least entertained. Because it is time for Cluff's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. I'm your host, Arizona attorney, Brig Clough. My guest today is Professor Rhett Larson. Rhett Larson is the Richard Morrison Professor of Water Law at Arizona State University's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. And I've got some great news for you. Today, we are going to be talking about water law. Now, I know what you're thinking. Boring! But I assure you, after hearing Professor Larson discuss this subject, you will be thirsting for more. He is one of the most enthralling lecturers I've ever heard, and he joins me today to discuss his new book, Just Add Water. I am with my good friend, esteemed professor of the law <laughs> at Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law at Arizona State University, and just kind of like one of the most interesting people I know. It's... uh I mean, you, you've always got surprises for me, Rhett. Thanks for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Now you've got it all teed up where I feel like I have to, I have to be the Dos Equis man all of a sudden. Well, that's, uh, that's why I did that at the beginning. I wanted to make sure that the expectations were clear. Um, <laughs> so I'll just turn it over to you now, Rhett. Say something amazing. <laughs> uh, something amazing. Yeah. Maybe something that would be amusing, but also bring us to tears and fill us with resolve. That's that's it. Okay. Well, I feel like I'm blanking. Okay. 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 That was a little rough. That was a little rough. I'm (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna tee it up for you a little bit better than that. Um, but Rhett, you just wrote a book, which is awesome. I mean, Thank you. You wrote a book. How awesome is I that? I know. I I know. It's still I. It makes me sad that it happened during the COVID pandemic because all I want to do is just drive around in bookstores and libraries and stand next to it and then just wait for people to walk by and I just go. I wrote that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, what else is there to do? Oh. Yeah, and it feels weird that I I know that I should that my number one thing that I should be most excited about is the substance of the book and what the book is saying. But honestly, right now I'm most excited just about its existence. Yeah. Wow. I can't believe there's a book. You're an author. My favorite quote was my youngest, my, my five-year-old. She looked at me and she was, dad, you're in the author boat. You're like in the same boat as Beverly Cleary. You're right. I am. You have achieved (laughs) Beverly Cleary status on at least one level. I know. I'm pretty excited about it. That's fantastic. You have, um, you've got some rising writers in your family, don't you? I have a 14 year old son and it's strange and wonderful that I will walk by and see him on the computer and I'll say, you know, Hey buddy, what are you doing? And he, his answer is almost always, Oh, writing. So yeah, he, uh, he loves it. That's, that's his thing. So I feel lucky as a dad that I'm not I'm not yelling at him to to get off of video games or stop watching TV all the time. Instead, I he's constantly writing. 
Okay. Yeah, that's that's real impressive. I, I know your son. He is an impressive young man. And as proud as I am to say that I know you, Rat, I don't know. I mean, I'm dropping your name everywhere. Like every conversation. <laughs> it's like, oh, did I mention that uh I've got Rhett Larson's phone number? I could just call him <laughs> right now. Um, as proud as I am of that, really my end game is I I, I know your son. Because when he becomes a big superstar, you know, that's going to be real my, my uh, lead with all the name dropping. Well, thanks. I'm, I'm counting on him uh, blowing his, his dad out of the water, which is not hard to do. I see what you did there with your water analogy. <laughs> there you go. Okay, Rhett. Um, I want to do a little life sketch here because you kind of have led an interesting life. So let's talk about life before law school. And I, I didn't realize this until reading your book that you didn't grow up in Gilbert, which is where I know you from. Um, well, you did. You spent some of your growing up years in Gilbert. But before that, you were in Yuma. I was. So I was born in Mesa. Uh, but my family moved to Yuma, Arizona when I was three. In fact, being on a Greyhound bus from Mesa to Yuma is my first memory. Uh, and so I lived in Yuma until I was nine or 10, um, and loved it there. And I think it made a big impact on me growing up a bike ride away from where the Colorado river meets California, Mexico, and Arizona and growing up where most of, you know, all of my friends, you know, their, their families were either in farming or they, they worked on the military base. So it, I think it had a big impact on the way that I thought about water. And I'm sure I didn't realize it at the time, but it still influenced me. And then I moved, uh, I moved when my dad got changed jobs and then moved up here to the Valley, moved to Gilbert when I was in the third grade. Um, we didn't give the attention that the fact was due when you mentioned that your first memory is riding on a Greyhound bus from Mesa to Yuma. <laughs> wow, that is awesome. What, was that the initial yeah. move to Yuma? You guys hopped on the bus, or was that... Uh, hopped on a bus, yeah. Oh, man. Okay, that's that's just really fantastic. Have you verified with your parents that that actually happened, though? Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I have verified. It's the, the memory uh, is sort of embedded in my mind because I just remember needing to go to the bathroom so badly and getting to use a bathroom on a bus for the first time and mm-hmm. how delighted I was. Yeah, that is special. Well, okay, <laughs> that's incredible. But I will say my kids have these memories of things and I'm like, that never happened. So, But you, if you have verified that with your, your parents, then that's phenomenal. Okay, so Yuma, right at the shore of the Colorado River. That seems so appropriate. It's 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 meant to be. Okay, what happened after yeah. that? Uh, so uh, I grew. I spent the rest of my growing up years here in Gilbert. Uh, that's how you and I met, and our families got to know each other. Uh, my younger sister and your younger sister grew up as close friends together. So. Uh, and then your, your younger sister is my age and we were in classes together. So then I, uh, went up to Brigham Young University, uh, was there for a little bit. Then I left, I served a two year mission, uh, for my church. I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic for two years. 
came back and uh, finished uh, an undergraduate degree at Brigham Young University and, and married my sweetheart, who I met for the first time in third grade where I, when I moved from Yuma to, to Gilbert. And uh, that takes us up to law school. My sure. students will talk to me all the time, and I worry that my students sit in classes and think, look at how much this guy knows. And I always want to go, listen, outside of three areas, I'm a moron. But inside of water law, basketball statistics, and comic books, I'm a genius. But once I'm outside of those three things, I don't know anything. Wow. Well, I didn't know that comic books were uh, in your wheelhouse. That that might oh, be yeah. a, uh, another episode. And basketball is probably another episode, too. We, we have talked about that before. Um, oh, yeah. Well, the whole last dance thing I, I is just thrown me back into the glory days and painful days of being a uh, Phoenix Suns fan. Well, I'll tell you, I have not watched it. Um, because it's, it's rough. Yeah, I know. I, I have. I have a problem with Michael Jordan. I've never yeah. gotten over it. No, neither have I. In fact, it was strange for my kids because when I was a young kid, my after a Phoenix Suns game, we went and saw the Bulls play the Suns. My mom and dad followed the Bulls bus to their hotel, and I ran up to Michael Jordan as a kid with a basketball card and handed him the card. He took the card from me, said, on the back here, and I said, yes, and then he signed the card handed it back to me, I literally reached out a finger and touched the palm of his hand Oh wow! and took it back and told my kids and showed them the basketball cards that I got him signature from Michael Jordan and actually talked to him. And my kids said, that's like meeting LeBron James. And I said, no, that's not like meeting LeBron James. That's like meeting Superman or Paul Bunyan. It's like meeting a mythological figure. It's like meeting Achilles. And my kids are like, wow, you must really like Michael Jordan. I'm like, oh no, I don't like Michael Jordan at all. I'm a Suns fan. I can't stand Michael Jordan. They're like, well, you speak about him with such reverence. I'm like, that's how good he was. <laughs> he was so good that people that didn't like him feared him like he was Zeus. Yeah, and, and he was mean. I, I thought that you were going to end this story by saying that you turned over the card and looked at it, and he had written some insult to, uh, to you as a young child because – that would kind no. of be consistent with his uh, <laughs> on brand, <laughs> no doubt. But uh, I'm actually I- I'm glad that it didn't turn out that way, and I'm glad that you that your finger uh, grazed the palm of the great Michael Jordan. That is phenomenal. Ever since then, I believe that there I have one dunk somewhere inside of me. It gifted me with one dunk. I've never used it, but I believe that someday I will. I will. I will rise up and dunk, yeah. and that will be the one power I was granted. Yeah, wait for your moment, though. Um, don't yeah, waste that. I've been that. holding it back, thinking there, now that I'm in my 40s, it'll really come in handy. Yeah, there's no doubt you're going to know the time when it comes. Uh, I mean, it, it will yeah. call to you, like, this is what I've been saving it for. But, um, yeah, don't don't use that too early, because it might not no, I'm work. Saving it for the, I'm saving it for the grandkids. Well, That's who I want to stun. If... If you do it or try to do it and it doesn't work, you'll know that you, you've you gone too early. That, that's true. Yeah. Or that he was, he was just a false idol. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you go to law school. Um, you go to University of Chicago, hoity-toity law school. 
And, it did work out. And if you hadn't gone to University of Chicago, despite your brilliance, you would not be a law professor right now because that I don't think it really matters that much where you went to law school for most things uh, in the in a career in law, but it certainly does when it comes to uh, getting a job as a law professor. At least that's my no, that's observation. True. No, it's true. It's stupid. I don't think it should be that way. And I'm not, I mean, law professors are probably like lots of other people who hire, which is you assume that what you did was great, so you tend to hire people like you. And I just think that's what happens with law schools. They, people tend to perpetuate themselves by looking for a younger version of themselves. I don't know that that's a good way to do it, but that is true that we do tend to do it. And I have students who come to me all the time and they say, I really want to be a law professor. And I will give them the advice. I'm like, unfortunately, if you really want to increase your chances of being a law professor, you have a couple of options. Number one, you need to transfer to a higher ranked school. That's dumb and not fair, but it's probably what you need to do. Or you need to get really, really, really interested in tax law right now and go to NYU and get an LLM in tax. And then you can, you know, there's a path that way. But it's, it's a hard, it's a hard, I mean, when people talk about being a law professor, I always tell them it's a great job, but like lots of other jobs, like every job, it has its downsides. People ask about the downsides and say the downsides are huge, big ones are twofold. Number one, well, the biggest one is grading, which is just a miserable chore. But the second thing is there's, you have to go where the job takes you. You know, there's 200 law firms in Phoenix. There's 200 law schools in the United States of America. And that's partly why I ended up at the University of Oklahoma. That initially, you just go you have to go. And I'm the luckiest person in the world that I get to be a law professor and live where I want to live and where my wife and I are from. But the other downside is, is the barriers to entry are just ridiculous. There's a bunch of comical and not terribly rational hoops you have to jump through in order to even have a shot at the job. And you know, my, I remember my my parents thought, oh well, you you know, you'll be able to this will work out. You'll you'll get a job as a law professor and. I'd always tell them all the things that you see that you think make me exceptional. The old, those things just keep me from getting laughed out of the room and trying to be a law professor. They don't set me apart here anymore. So graduating from the university of Chicago didn't set me apart as a law professor. All it meant is I got my foot in the door. Yeah. That's just your minimal requirement. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're, well, I mean, I don't want to lay it on too thick, but I will say you are a very good lecturer. Um, and that is usually not a, I don't think it's part of the hiring criteria generally. Um, when, when people, when they're looking for law professors, um, I, I think, and I, and I have to disagree with you a little bit, even though I, my experience is significantly less than yours when it comes to, uh, legal academia. Um, I really don't think it's as much a factor of uh, faculty members wanting to hire people that are like themselves from prestigious law schools. I think it really matters in terms of the the marketing of the law school. Um, U.S. Mm-hmm. News has left an indelible impact on uh, uh, on law school academics because they they're the first to start ranking law schools and I think that their rankings still matter for some reason um, and I think they look at where the uh, faculty of the uh, law school went to school and if they see prestigious institutions like University of Chicago or Harvard Yale that helps 
No, it's true. And it, the ranking system when it comes to how law schools are run, it's a strange thing because it's really easy to criticize it as an outsider and say, oh, I don't understand why these law schools pay all this attention to rankings. But the problem is, is that students and prospective students pay attention to rankings. Alumni and, and many alumni who are donors pay, pay attention to rankings and other law professors pay attention to rankings and law reviews that publish your scholarship pay attention to rankings. So you ignore rankings at your peril. Even if you think they're a bad idea and you don't like them, uh, you don't really have the luxury of ignoring them. Amen. Okay, so you go to University of Chicago um, I know one of the reasons why you were interested in going to school there is they had a really uh, famous constitutional law professor that you were hoping to take a class from. Uh, who was that? <laughs> so this is my this is my story, which is so my second year in law school, I was supposed to take constitutional law, uh, con law one, I think, which was like governmental structure checks and balances. Uh, separation of powers, et cetera. And we were supposed to take it from this very, very famous uh, professor. Um, and she had ended up adopting a baby, I think, right before the semester began. So they replaced oh. her. Oh, uh, did? That, that stinks. So the, the, I know. <sighs> okay, well. So they replaced her with some young nobody who no one had ever heard of. He was, uh, he was a lecturer at the law school, but was in the state legislature at the time. And oh, his name was Barack Obama. So I always laugh about it because I remember all of the students thinking, oh, we were going to get a famous person, and now we're going to get Barack Obama. Who's ever heard of him? Some no-name. Some no-name. So Barack Obama was a constitutional law professor, and uh, he was a very good teacher, and he had he would invite, invite small groups of students up to his office to meet with him. And one day it was my turn, or a group of students plus me were invited up to his office to meet him, and I went up and Usually people would go up and they would have coffee with them, but I'm not a coffee drinker. So I went up with this big cookie. I mean, it's a cookie the size of a dinner plate that they sold in the law school cafeteria. So everybody's sitting around chatting in his office and sipping coffee, and I'm breaking off hunks off of this big cookie. And Professor Obama stops and he goes, Mr. Larson, what's with the big cookie? And I said, have you never had a, the big cookie from the law school cafeteria? And he goes, no. So I broke off a piece and handed it to him, and he ate it. And he goes, that is good. I said, well, I don't know a lot about constitutional law, but I know a lot about cookies. <laughs> and ever after, he called me Big Cookie. So whenever he called on me in class, I was Big Cookie. When he'd see me in the hallway, he'd say Big Cookie. I remember once he walked by. I had a desk right near his office because I was a research assistant for a professor who was right next to him. And he walked by my desk and he held up a cookie and was like, look, I got a big cookie. Oh, wow. So my mom yeah, my mom always said, do you think he'd remember you? And I always think, you know what? I bet if I got close enough without getting tasered and I said, Professor Obama, it's me, big cookie. I think I've got a shot at being remembered. Yeah, well, I think so. I think that stands out. And how many people does he give, does he give nicknames to? Well, maybe it's a lot. I don't know. Uh, yeah, if I... If I thought about it, I'll bet I could come up with some uh, Obama nicknames, but nothing better than Big Cookie. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey, of all the nicknames I could have gotten, uh, Big Cookie is very apropos. It actually fits me very well. My parents <laughs> could have named me Big Cookie. They would have done no better. Okay, so you finish law school. You go into law practice. You come to Arizona, uh, Gallagher and Kennedy, right? So I actually started off at Brown and Bain. Okay. Uh, I was at Brown and Bain. Then they merged with Perkins Coie while I was there. 
And I was there for two years and really loved it. Uh, I worked in the real estate group and it was really good for me. I think it prepared me to be a much better water lawyer by getting a really strong understanding of, of property law in general and working on real estate transactions and seeing how important water was to real estate transactions. But honestly, I had always wanted to be a water lawyer. That's what I really wanted to do. And there wasn't a really strong water law practice at Perkins Coie at the time. And so I was looking around thinking, you know, if the opportunity ever comes up to learn from really good water lawyers, I wanted to keep my eye open. So after a couple of years at Perkins Coie, I made a really difficult decision because I loved the people there to leave and go to Gallagher and Kennedy where I, they have a really strong natural resources group. And I got to learn from some, from some of the best in the business, learning how to be a good water lawyer. So, okay, water law. I'm amazed that you had an interest in water law going into law school or, or during law school because I, I, I don't think I would have had any concept of what that might be exactly. It wouldn't have been alluring to me. However, I will say that my view has changed substantially mostly from conversations with you that we've had over the years, but um, it, it really uh, drove the point home when I was reading your book, which... Thanks, that's perfect. Let me just say to our audience, if you, if you read only one book on water law this year, let, <laughs> let Rhett Larson's book, which is entitled Just Add Water, be that book. It's phenomenal. It is so much more important, and to borrow a, a water term, influential than I would have ever guessed prior to, to really reading about it. But I want to read a quote here, okay? Uh, sure. Because this, uh, this is pretty good stuff, and I'll, I'll let you um, add to it, but I'm going to read this. Uh, it's two or three sentences here. Water is life and death, droughts and floods, food and famine, poverty and prosperity, sickness and health, war and peace. Its centrality is evident in the ruins of our most ancient civilizations and in our hopes for a future among the stars. It is a cause of and solution for our most serious problems. Water is not just an important thing. Water is is everything. Okay, that was good stuff. I mean, you had to know when you wrote that, Rhett, that, okay, this was a nice flourish that I just had here. Thanks, I hope so. Yeah. So, let's, uh, I want to talk about water law, but actually, before we do that, I want to go back and add one other uh, biographical detail here. I think that I, I knew you because you moved into our neighborhood at around the time that you were working at Gallagher and Kennedy and maybe Brown and Bain. Um, and then, then you announced that you were leaving to go to what sounded to me very much like Hogwarts. <laughs> so tell us about that chapter and then use that as a, uh, uh, stepping off point to uh, to talk about water law. Sure. So after practicing law at Gallagher and Kennedy and working in water law, uh, I had worked on a case that had gotten you know, a little bit of notoriety. And it, I had, because of that, I was speaking in front of a few groups and 
had made contact with someone who said, you know, there's this program at the University of Oxford uh, in England where uh, we bring together people from all sorts of disciplines and all over the world who come and study water science policy and management at Oxford. Um, and would you be interested in that? And I said, you know, look, you know, I am, it's a recession. I, I've I'm married. I had three kids at the time. I was, I was just about to make partner at the law firm. I thought there's just no way in the world that I could possibly make this work. And they said, well, what if we, what if you had a scholarship? What if we had a scholarship that covered all of your costs? And I said, well, even then I'm not sure, but I ended up getting a scholarship to it. And I thought, well, here we go. I'm going to go ask my wife. And I went and talked to Becky and I said, no, here's what happened. And and we could go. And I thought for sure she would go, are you crazy? It's a recession. You're, you know, you have a good job. We have three kids. You're out of your mind. And instead Becky go, Becky said, no, let's do it. We can, let's do it. Uh, which it was an amazing moment as she's, you know, always been in my corner and has been, you know, I would never, I couldn't accomplish anything without her. And she's always been that way in terms of encouraging me and leading me. But it was also an interesting moment because I, you know, I think it was another way of her saying, you need to sort of get off the treadmill. I was traveling a lot. I was working really long hours. And I think she saw it as a way for me to be home more and be with the family more. So we moved sight unseen. None of us had ever been to England before and moved sight unseen to Oxford, England, uh, where I got my master's degree in water science policy and management, sort of an interdisciplinary master's degree. Um, and it was an amazing experience. It was, uh, it was incredible. I met amazing mentors and teachers. I expanded, you know, it wasn't just about water law anymore. I was learning more about the economics and, and the, you know, the ecology and the chemistry and the engineering behind it. And, I got to see the way water works in a lot of the part and a lot of other parts of the world. Uh, so it was, it was an incredible experience. And then I thought, well, what, what can I do with this experience? And I, I got another degree. I did all of this research. Should I just go back to Arizona and, and practice water law again? And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could be a, a law professor. Maybe that's the way to do it. And the advice I was given was the best thing you can do with that time in England is to publish that's the coin of the realm for law professors. So I worked hard. I researched a lot. I wrote a couple of papers and published them. And then that's what ultimately opened the door for me to be able to, to be a, a law professor. Well, I don't think I would be here right now if it weren't for the time I needed to research and write while I, while I was at Oxford and for the mentors that were there. So, and that's, that's the story. If it weren't for Oxford, I wouldn't be Professor Larson right now. I, I'd still be practicing water law. Wow, that is awesome. Um, another interesting detail is that um, it's, it's only interesting. It's not important. But uh, you wore the four-cornered academic scholar caps that, like that you wear at graduation occasionally at Oxford. Is that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I would, have to, I would have to wear them when I took exams, and I would have to wear the robes. They're called subfusks. I'd have to wear my subfusk robes to take exams, and you'd take it in, you know, this, you know, whatever 700-year-old building, and then I would have to wear my subfusk robes to turn in my papers. Anytime I went and had to turn a paper and I had to be in full subfusk robes and my kids would see me walk into these, you know, seven, 800 year old, you know, buildings in the middle of England covered in robes. My kids would go, dad, are you a wizard? And cause it, and it looked just like being in Hogwarts. In fact, a lot of the filming locations are there in Oxford. And it was the only time in my life I've ever been a tourist attraction because I would be walking down the street in full subfusk robes with two kids holding on to a stroller pushing a third kid 
and you'd have all of these tourists stop and go, hey, can we take a picture of you? Look at you in your, in your crazy wizard robes with all of these kids. And then you speak with your American accent and just really uh, let a lot of people down, I'll bet. Oh, I did. Before, the unfortunate thing is that I still had an American accent, but my kids all picked up British accents, which oh. I love. My, my son, who you know, he, was, he would go, he would get in big fights with my daughter about, is it, we have them on camera where my daughter would go, no, it's banana. And he goes, no, it's not, it's banana. <laughs> or there was one moment where we were trying to catch a bus and I hear him yelling from behind me, oi, dad, my trousers are getting caught into my trainers. Oh, wow. So that, I missed that. that. The only worth... thing that stuck with him is rubbish. He still uses the word rubbish, but otherwise he's completely lost the accent. Oh, wow. What an awesome family adventure. Even if the law career hadn't worked out for you, it would be worth it just for that, Rhett. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad we did it. I can't believe we had such a cool experience. It was amazing. Well, let me ask you, um, I, my only regret, I'm, I'm saying that jokingly, tongue-in-cheek. It's not my regret. But my only regret about your book is that it was written and published before coronavirus because it yeah. has deprived me of the opportunity to uh, hear about your thoughts regarding water law and how it intersects with uh, the coronavirus in particular, although you do have a chapter that's devoted to uh, public health uh, that talks a lot about uh, pandemics and that sort of thing. But I would like to know specifically applications that you see to uh, in water law with the uh, coronavirus pandemic that we're living through right now. So, I mean, it's, you know, to hammer everything to the nail, and to me, everything is water. I mean, that's functionally, you know, the quote that you read from the book is sort of my, my not just my theory of academia, it's basically my theory of life, which is everything is water, and everything can be explained with water, and problems can be solved using water, and problems are caused by the presence or absence of water, and coronavirus is no different. If you look right now, the highest per capita infection rate in the world is at least partially here in Arizona, it's on the Navajo Nation's land. And why? Why is it spreading so fast in the Navajo Nation? It doesn't look like other areas where you're seeing rapid transmission, right? It's not a a super densely populated area. To the contrary, it's a huge area of land and people are really widely dispersed. Why is it now spreading faster among the Navajo than it was in New York City? And the answer is it's it's about water access. What's our number one most important weapon against the coronavirus? More important than social distancing, more important than medical, than medical therapies or interventions. The single most important thing that we can do is wash our hands. And for people who don't have access to clean, improved water and sanitation facilities and sufficient water, not just to drink, but water for hygiene and sanitation purposes, they face very serious public health challenges because they just don't have enough water to reliably and consistently be able to use it for hygiene purposes. And on the Navajo land, you have a lot of American citizens who are in widely dispersed small communities, so you don't necessarily have the economies of scale for large-scale centralized water distribution systems. And because of that, it's difficult to design a system there, and that kind of water insecurity leads people to have challenges in terms of infectious disease issues. And the Navajo, who they potentially, you know, they've been in, in water disputes, legal disputes over water rights, 
for decades now, and we're now to the point where we're actually having you know court hearings on disputes between the Navajo and the Hopi over water rights, the resolution of those claims becomes acute now because the Navajo are going to be looking at this challenge and thinking, what can we do in future negotiations to settle our water rights to make sure that that settlement brings in the right attention, the right focus, the right financing, the right investment into infrastructure to make sure that this kind of uh, epidemic never occurs on our land again. I think it will it will affect the way the Navajo negotiate going forward because it's going to reprioritize a focus on getting their hands on the necessary water supply and the necessary water infrastructure to address what is a very real public health issue. And in the end, virtually every disease that you can think about is is at least partially related to water. It's either being transmitted in water, uh, things like cholera, or it's being the vectors are living and breeding in water, like mosquitoes and malaria, or the disease is spreading because of a lack of, of available water. There's this fascinating water study that was done uh, called Drawers of Water. It's a longitudinal 30-year-long study done in villages in Uganda. And it notes that just moving from a system where young girls carry peanut oil cans of water from the well to a system where young men carry large five-gallon drums of water, even though the water isn't any cleaner, just the fact that the village gets more water makes a huge difference in terms of public health effects because now people are washing their hands. I've been in situations in my own life where you make a decision. I'm either going to wash my hands or I'm going to drink or I'm going to cook. And often washing your hands is the first thing that gets knocked off when there's not enough water. But if you make a difference, if you make sure people have enough water that they can wash their hands, it makes a huge difference in terms of public health. Every American who wakes up every day and turns a tap and watches all of the clean water they could ever want gush out of multiple points in their wall as clean and cool and affordable as you could ever hope for, that is wealth beyond imagining. And it's something we should never take for granted. And it is the single most important public health intervention we can make in the world is to expand access to that unbelievable miracle. And COVID-19, as serious as it is, as serious as this epidemic is, today, 7,000 children under the age of five will die because of lack of access to clean water. 7,000 just children under the age of five. So if you think about what could we do as a human family to make the biggest difference in public health, it is to focus on expanding access to improved water. Mm. Rhett, I have had this thought many times before, but never more than I'm having it right now which is that I want to come and audit your classes and just hear you hold forth on subjects like this. That was very well said. Anytime. Yeah. Thank you. Anytime. So, Rhett, I want to follow up on a couple of things that you said. One, um, there's two things. I'll just put them out there to you, and then you can uh, respond to them in whatever order that you want. But one thing that you said is the Navajo have this terrible um, uh, hot zone happening uh, on their land. Um, and I, sad to say, I didn't realize that, that it was such a hot zone. I had read that, uh, that, that they were having a problem, um, but I didn't realize that it was one of the, uh, uh, the worst hot zones in the world. Um, but it, it, 
it makes sense to me that um, that water insecurity would be a big problem on the Navajo lands. I get that because we're in the desert and, you know, they are scattered, um, you know, over a large area. The, the lack of population density uh, makes it difficult to install um, uh, the, the sort of infrastructure that would provide uh, clean water. I, I get that, but I would think that that same, those same factors exist in lots of other Indian lands. Um, is, is the Navajo water insecurity problem worse than uh, other, uh, on other Indian reservations? So that's one question. The other question is, you mentioned that you have uh, had the experience of having to make the choice between, hmm, do I use this water to wash my hands, um, cook with, or drink? I think that was the, uh, uh, the options that you presented, and, and you've had to make that decision. So uh, talk to us about when you've made that decision. So with regard to the Navajo, their situation, I mean, partially this is such a strange disease that we're still learning about and the way in which it seems to to burn so hot amongst some communities and less so in others is sometimes confusing and hard to understand why. But I think often it's not hard to understand why. There are comorbidities that you can usually identify. People are either working in close areas with limited sanitation hygiene facilities or they're, they're, it's amongst a community like a care center or a nursing home where uh, it's a particularly vulnerable population, or it's amongst a group that has uh, you know, limited access to health care or uh, are dealing with other comorbidities that are associated with poverty. Many of those issues are true on, on Navajo land. But I think that the Navajo are dealing with a situation that is unique amongst other tribes, even here in Arizona, which is First of all, the Navajo land is uniquely gigantic. It is, uh, their, their reservation land is huge. The Navajo Nation is by far the largest uh, Native American reservation in terms of overall land mass, which means it's a much more distributed, much more far-flung area for people to live across. It makes water delivery a little bit harder. It's not like dealing with, say, the Ak-Chin um, or, uh, you know, the, the Wallupi, which are smaller communities, uh, White Mountain Apache, where it's a little bit smaller, not quite as difficult to build a system that can move water all around the community. I think the other issue that's difficult is that the vast majority of tribes in Arizona have settled their water rights claims. We only have a few tribes left that have not, and the Navajo are one of them. The Navajo have not settled their claim for very good and understandable reasons. Um, but what not settling the claim means is that the vast majority of tribes who have settled their water rights claims have settled it in exchange for investment, both state and federal investment in water infrastructure. So tribes have said, we're willing to give up a certain quantity of water that we might otherwise be legally entitled to in exchange for more investment in water infrastructure. And the Navajo haven't made that exchange yet. So they haven't tapped into a potential source of investment and financing to develop their water infrastructure, which is why I think this pandemic will affect the way the Navajo uh, negotiate or litigate their water rights going forward. I think there's going to be a greater focus on uh, on tapping into revenue sources to improve water, to improve water infrastructure on their land. I think that's how many, that's how the Navajo are unique amongst other tribes in Arizona is their land is just larger 
and they haven't settled their claims yet and gotten their hands on some additional funding for water infrastructure. And then for me in dealing with, with water insecurity in my own life, so when I lived in the Dominican Republic, uh, in fact, this is really one of the moments that changed my life and really as much as anything made me care about water law was uh, when I was a missionary, uh, I survived a Category 5 hurricane on my mission. And it was, it was the scariest thing I've ever been through. Uh, it destroyed the community that we were living in. Uh, I lived in a small apartment at the base of, of a large cliff. There was a mudslide. Um, a lot of people were killed, and uh, the entire area was just destroyed by this hurricane. And I remember the, the sort of first night when things had calmed down, a lot of people around the neighborhood were living in our small apartment, and I was, I was just sleeping on the ground outside. And I just started breaking down crying. I just sobbed until my ribs hurt, and I thought, I'm just a stupid kid, and I'm in the middle of this, and I need someone to come and take care of me. And then somewhere out there in the middle of that city, there was someone with a car with a sound system that just boomed over the whole city and it boomed Bob Marley's song, Woman No Cry. And if you know that song, there's a part and it just repeats over and over again, everything's going to be all right. So I kind of stood up, straightened myself up, and calmed myself down and thought, I'm going to try and be a part of the solution. We're going to try and, and get better and recover from this. And in the coming months, it was a lot of work and rescue and recovery and rebuilding. But the one thing I noticed was that everything, every other problem seemed manageable if we could get rid of all of the dirty water and get our hands on enough clean water. And no other problem mattered if you couldn't deal with those two problems. And I remember having moments of having to say, look, I just don't have enough clean water right now. I'm either going to cook rice uh, with dirty water or I'm going to have to or I'm gonna have, so usually you just default, you drink the clean water and then you'd have to use dirty water for everything else that you were using. And I, I know that facing that kind of water insecurity decision every day is something that many of our brothers and sisters around the world uh, deal with constantly. And many of them right now are, are dealing with it on top of the facing consequences of a global pandemic. What should lawyers know about water law? Just Rank-and-file lawyers, not water specialists. What should we all know about water laws? we go about our, uh, our lives and our law practices? I think for lawyers, one thing I would want to impress upon lawyers is the unique nature of water. The water doesn't fit very comfortably into any category, any legal category. The reason I love studying it as a, as a focus of the law is because water is everything that the water is everything that wheat and gold and oil is. It is a valuable, saleable commodity. And in the desert, it is a scarce commodity, and it is the source of real power. I tell my students all the time, you want to know real power? Real power is controlling water in the desert. Uh, there's a reason why uh, Saddam Hussein built the Mosul Dam and named it the Saddam Hussein Dam. And there's a reason why ISIS targeted that dam specifically. Control of water in the desert is real power. And so it is this economic and political force in the same way that oil and gold and land are. But at the same time, it is everything that art and religion and music is. It is this beautiful, aesthetic, cultural resource. And so it implicates everything about economics. It implicates everything about property rights but it uniquely implicates 
cultural and human rights concerns at the same time, because as much as it's like other natural resources, you know, we don't squirt gasoline on each other in the summertime, and we don't throw coal at each other in the wintertime, and we don't baptize our children in uranium. Water's just different. We feel about it differently. And because of that, you can't just cavalierly pretend like, oh, well, it's a property right, and we'll litigate it like it's a property right. And we can't just act, well, it's a human right, and we'll litigate it like it's a human right. Or it is a public trust resource, and we will litigate it like it's a public trust resource. It's all of these things put together, which is why it's such a strange and difficult and fascinating area of the law. Wow. It is fascinating. Um, let's say you've got some uh, some disciples in the making out there that are hearing this, and they're like, wow, I want to be involved <laughs> in water law. How do I get into that Hogwarts program? Um, what... Uh, what can lawyers do? Are there any career opportunities in water law that you see for uh, lawyers that may be listening to this podcast? So the, tr- the hard thing about water law is that, in fact, this happens a lot when I, when I talk to my students or I introduce them to other water law practitioners in the state, is they will hear something that is true. And that is, if you're a water lawyer, you know, there's always going to be demand for your work and there's all kinds of demand for water lawyers. Oh, if you're a water lawyer, you'll never be out of work in Arizona. There are some, there is some truth to that. There is a lot of demand for water lawyers in Arizona. So in Arizona, we have two general stream adjudications, one adjudicating all the water rights in the Little Colorado River Basin, one adjudicating the water rights in the Gila River Basin. That is effectively means that every single surface water right in the state of Arizona that is not associated with the Colorado River is currently under a quiet title action, effectively. I mean, imagine every piece of land in Arizona was under a quiet title action. Mm. That is effectively what's happening to every water right in Arizona. And it is nearly a hundred thousand total claimants and 10 and orders of magnitude more total claims. It is. And I know this is going to sound like hyperbole, but I actually mean it seriously. It is the most complicated piece of litigation in the history of the world. There's nothing like, there's nothing like the general stream adjudications in Arizona. They are, they are a complexity and a challenge that's unlike anything else I've ever even heard about in the law. And because you have tens of thousands of parties that all need lawyers to represent them, there is demand out there for water lawyers, for lawyers who can at least help their clients navigate the challenges of filing a statement of claim and overseeing their role in the stream adjudication. And the new special master in the stream adjudication, she's doing an exceptional job and she is moving quickly for the first time in many decades. We're actually seeing real progress, but the challenge of the real progress is real progress leaves a lot of people behind because they don't have lawyers to help them keep up. And if you don't invest in lawyers, you know, you're a small farmer, you're small, have a small hobby ranch, or even if you're a small city or town in rural Arizona, you need a lawyer to help you keep up in what is effectively deciding the most important thing in the world to you, which is, do you control your water? So there's a lot of demand out there, but the challenge is, is that the water law bar is relatively small and insular in Arizona. We all know each other, and there's a lot of scrambling to get your hands on the small number of water lawyers that are out there. It requires a lot of training and education uh, to understand the issues and keep up with them. And so if I had advice for young people who are looking to get into water law, I would say study water law in law school um, and Take an opportunity to meet the water lawyers that are around you. 
look at places like the Department of Water Resources, uh, Central Arizona Water Conservation District, um, the Bureau of Reclamation. These are agencies that have a lot of power in water issues. And because of that, they've got externships and internships and opportunities to be able to get your foot in the door. Um, and for lawyers right now who are thinking, you know, what if I wanted to be able to expand my practice or shift practice? Part of it is you'd have to make the same decision that I made, which is I was a real estate lawyer for two years, but I wanted to be a water lawyer. And I had to make a, I had to gamble and make a shift and wait and be patient until there was a time where I could find a lawyer who could teach me how to be a water lawyer. But the other thing I would say is keep track of developments in water law, especially when it comes to regulations of assured water supply or adequate water supply designations of potentially new irrigation non-expansion areas in the state as the state because in 2026 our drought contingency plan and our shortage sharing guidelines will expire which means 2026 will be we must prepare ourselves as a state for how we are going to survive shortage in the Colorado River Basin going forward and so lots of new things are going to be coming out right now in water law just in the next five or six years and lawyers who are interested in being a part of that get involved now get involved uh, with the legislation, get involved with the rulemaking, get in on the ground floor as these new laws are being made. And that'll get you sort of the opportunity to be a leader going forward as we really reshape water law in anticipation of 2026. Professor Rhett Larson, a.k.a. Big Cookie, it has been <laughs> a pleasure to talk to you. It is. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much. Oh, man, really great information. And if I might add... I, I'm sure that all of those suggestions were absolutely uh, top-notch, worth their weight in gold, maybe even in water. Um, but uh, I think that the first place to start would actually be to go and buy the book Just Add Water by Professor Rhett Larson and read that. It is actually surprisingly entertaining and extremely informative and enlightening. So thank, thank you very you so much. much. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Brick. Okay. You take care and stay healthy. All right. Thanks. You too. All right. Bye-bye. That is it for this episode of Clough's Notes on Arizona Lawyer Life. Thank you to my guests and listeners. Be sure to share this show with all your lawyer friends. And if you have an idea for the show, give me a call or send me an email at brig at cluffinjurylawyers.com. I'll see you soon.